This is John Shannon with Radio Free Galisteo, and I am speaking with John Richard Saylor, Ph.D., who is the author of Lakes, Their Birth, Life, and Death from Timber Press. Dr. Saylor is a professor of mechanical engineering at Clemson University. Welcome, Dr. Saylor. Thank you so much for having me on the show, John. It's a pleasure. So lakes, I'm familiar with lakes in that I grew up around them. I'm from upstate New York originally, and I know you're familiar with the Finger Lakes. Mm -hmm. So I'm definitely going to ask you questions about that at some point. Sure. Um, but how does a mechanical engineer get interested in lakes? That's a good question. Uh, I know you've interviewed uh, many authors on this, this program. And normally when a, a professor writes a book, uh, tends to be sort of a compilation of the research that he or she's done over over the years. And while while it's true that I've done a, a little bit of research on lakes, uh, really it's a, it's a very little bit. Mm. Uh, the the majority of my research has been actually studying water drops. I've done a lot of work with artificially generated fog, uh, combining that with ultrasonics and and using that as a means for removing particles from air. So sort of a, an air cleaning technology has been the recent heart of my research. So we've uh, used that to, you know, remove particles from diesel exhaust. Mm. And most recently we focused on using it to remove COVID particles from the air to, to help reduce airborne COVID transmission. So that's a pretty far cry from lakes, it might seem. But really when I talk about water drops, I've always been fascinating in air with air-water interfaces. Uh, drops is one example of, of that, and that's what I focused on, but lakes is another. And sort of how this book evolved was that I had a, a relatively short research project on lakes. And as you pointed out, I'm a mechanical engineer. So when we got around to writing the journal article to get it published, I, you know, I had to do a bit of homework. I had to do a bit of reading. Mm -hmm. You know, when you write a journal article, you have to learn the vocabulary and the general style of, of how things are published. So I had a lot of reading to do. And I, I think at that time, I thought about lakes probably uh, the way many of your listeners do, that, that they're, you know, they're wonderful places to be. Uh, yeah. It's great to have a to have a house next to one for all kinds of reasons. <laughs> and, you know, that's about it. I thought they were kind of placid and relaxing and really uh, pleasant, but I didn't really find them fascinating. Let's put mm. it that way. But as I started uh, to read, to do, do the background reading that I needed to do, I realized that I was, I was definitely wrong, that, that lakes can be mysterious, fascinating, and, and even violent. And Perhaps the thing that really kind of motivated me the most to uh, to write a book on lakes was my personal discovery, I guess, of a kind of lake uh, called called the Carolina Bay. And Carolina Bays are lakes that are found along what's called the Atlantic Coastal Plain. That's the region not too far inland from the Atlantic coast, from southern New Jersey all the way uh, to northern Florida. And these are lakes that are perfectly elliptical. There are these perfectly elliptical lakes. There's, uh, you know, estimates vary, but as many as 100,000 of them. Wow. And so there are these perfect ellipses. And, you know, if you remember from geometry, an ellipse has a long axis and a short axis. And these, these lakes have their long axis all pointed in the same direction. Interesting. Which is? Northwest. Okay. Yeah. And when I was reading about them, the first thing I did, and I'd really encourage your listeners to do the same, is, is if you want to have a really interesting experience, it's just open Google Maps and enter uh, Elizabethtown, 
North Carolina. So Elizabethtown is just a, it's a small town in North Carolina, but it happens to be right at a location where there are, are a great number of these Carolina bays. And if you do that and then go to satellite view, what you're going to see just to the, to, to the uh, east of town is a great number of perfectly elliptical, uh, they're going to look like green ovals, okay? So many of these lakes have been drained, so you, you're not going to actually see too many filled with water. And many of them have been used to, to plant fields in or, or do other things, but you're going to see all of these perfectly elliptical things in the landscape. And what I think your your listeners will realize as they do that, and as I did when I first did this, is that they're everywhere. They're just all over the place. Hmm. And I, you know, I was I was just kind of blown away by this. I'd never, never even heard of a Carolina Bay, even though at that point in time, I think I'd been living in South Carolina, uh, where Clemson is, for I think ten to fifteen years at that point, and I had never even heard the term, let alone actually seen one of these. So that just really intrigued me. Well, it's intriguing me. And so without spoiling, if it's in the book, how did these things form? Well, uh, so I won't give too much. What I will say is that the formation mechanism is is still not, not known. Several theories, one of which is pretty controversial, I write about in great detail in the book, but there is no theory out there that adequately explains what you see at, at a Carolina Bay. Fascinating. Well, I think uh, that should certainly pique some of our listeners' interest. Uh, it's certainly gotten mine. So th- that is certainly mysterious, which you mentioned lakes can be. Uh, you also mentioned uh, dangerous. Right. That's true. And I guess, you know, probably the the other thing that really uh, spurred me on to write about, write a book on lakes was, was one particular lake, uh, not a class of lakes, but a specific lake called uh, Lake Nios. So Lake Nios is in Cameroon, in equatorial Africa. It's an example of, of what's called a crater lake. And there's a lot of crater lakes in the in the world, including our American Crater Lake, which is goes by the same name. Um, <laughs> and, and these are just uh, lakes that form in long dormant volcanoes. Mm-hmm. And typically, not always, but typically they're, you know, nothing to worry about that the volcano is indeed very dormant. And that is and was true of Lake Nyos. The, the the volcano never presented any threat in terms of, you know, erupting magma and, and lava and things of that nature. But uh, what was true of Lake Nyos was that it was very deep. And at the bottom, uh, cracks in the bedrock were uh, leaking a carbon or emitting carbon dioxide bubbles from deeper in the earth. And w- when that process occurs at depth, where the pressure is high, the amount of carbon dioxide that can go into solution can be quite large. Hmm. So just like in a can of Coke, you know, when, when, when it's sealed, the pressure inside is high and the amount of CO2 that is dissolved in, in the water, in the soda, if you will, is larger than can stay in solution at atmospheric pressure, at regular pressure. And that is why when you open uh, you know, a can or a bottle of, of any soda, the first thing that happens is bubbles come out of solution because right. the solution went from from saturated or undersaturated to immediately supersaturated, which means it's holding more CO2 than it really can. And what happened in Lake Nyos was that the carbon dioxide continued to bubble up through the depth over the years, saturating that bottom water with CO2. 
And then what happened was on August 21st of 1986, uh, no one's sure exactly what happened. The consensus is probably it was an underwater landslide. But that deep saturated water, some of it moved upward. And when it moved upward, its pressure dropped, just like pressure goes down and up when you go down or up in a pool. So the pressure dropped and the water that went upward was now super saturated and bubbles came out of solution. Those bubbles, of course, rose upward. They had trained behind them more deep water. CO2 from that deep water subsequently became super saturated and bubbles came out of solution. And the cycle just underwent a feedback cycle. Another word for a feedback cycle is an explosion. And that's exactly what happened. So the entire lake emitted all of the CO2 that had been dissolved in the lake bottom over many, many years. And suddenly uh, about a quarter of a cubic mile of cold carbon dioxide gas was emitted. Uh, it's dense and cold, so it's, it, it ran down the side of the mountain at, at a high speed, and it ran through all the little towns at the base of the volcano and killed uh, 1,746 people as they slept. That's incredible. And basically, they they suffocated, correct? I mean, it, it, the CO2 pushed the oxygen out, or I mean, is that how that, it worked? That's exactly right. Turns out that CO2, any gas that's not oxygen will suffocate you. Um, but if you inhale a couple of times, you know, pure nitrogen or something, you're, you're not going to instantly die. But with CO2, apparently, it's, it's somewhat of a central nervous system depressant if you inhale like a full lungful of it. So the likely path to death was immediately passing out right away, followed by uh, suffocation. Wow. And there's evidence of that all over the, or was evidence of that all over the ground. You know, people were, had clearly passed out like in their cooking fires and things like that. They, one minute they were standing and the next minute they were down. Wild. Yeah. So quite, quite a, quite a tragedy. You know, 1,746 people died, many, many head of cattle. I mean, everything died in the area, which was kind of the interesting thing. Insects, birds, everything. It was just, kind of uh, devoid of life. And and descriptions I read of it, you know, they were terrible, of course, but, but it was also just so fascinating. I mean, uh, one reporter came down there and she, she noted, you know, that this was equatorial Africa, right? So you expect insects uh, in great, great number, of course, in that hot region. And, and it was just silent. There, were, there was no sound is, is what some of the people there said, which is just a very, very odd thing to have happen in equatorial Africa. That was another thing that just made me start to think about lakes in a way that, you know, geez, they're pretty different than than I thought they were, at least what they could be. Oh, yeah, that's 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 really quite different. Uh, just to follow up to that. So is this something that can happen again in that same lake or do, are they now that they're aware of it? Are they mitigating uh, the possibility of the uh, the CO2 buildup? Right. That's a great question. And, and the answer is the, is the latter. Happily, there is a de, uh, degassing strategy in place. It's pretty simple. It's just a, a set of pipes that that were built uh, in, into the lake that go down all the way, excuse me, all the way to the bottom. And the CO2 now rises up through these pipes. So the gas is constantly being taken out of solution, uh, hopefully preventing a buildup that could lead to the kind of disaster that occurred in, in, in 1986. And there has been, uh, you know, it's been some time now, so there has been no no such tragedy uh, there. All right. One of the other things that I know you're conversant on is, is, is it Lake Baikal? Lake Baikal, yeah. Tell us about that. That's a, 
Well, it's it's an incredible laboratory, apparently. Well, so Lake Baikal is arguably the oldest uh, lake on Earth. Uh, it's very deep, and I forget the estimate. It's a, a, over a million years in age. So old lakes tend to be of the kind of lake that Lake Baikal is, which is formed via tectonic plate action. Most lakes on Earth are created via glaciers. So the overwhelming majority of lakes that exist on planet Earth in one way or shape or form, they were created by a glacier. You, you pointed out the Finger Lakes. That's the classic example, right? Where yeah. the glacier both carved out the valley via glacial action as the glacier advanced and then dammed up the valley by leaving this enormous amount of till or moraine at the terminus of the valley, and then, of course, melting and leaving the water behind. So, so that's that's kind of the classic glacially formed lake. Other lakes out in the Midwest are kettle lakes, which are a little bit more complicated, a process where the moraine kind of just settles in place and has depressions. The depressions are modified, but, you know, kind of just drops moraine, and that creates a cavity that fills up with water. This is Radio Free Galisteo. Music and information from the Galisteo Basin. Radio Free Galisteo is listener-supported. Go to www.radiofreegalisteo.com and click on our Patreon support button to become an active supporting member of Radio Free Galisteo. Baikal, on the other hand, is formed by uh, tectonic plate action, uh, which results in gouging out of, of a depression of some kind. Often these depressions are very deep, which is, is the case for, uh, for Lake Baikal. You mentioned laboratory though, but I, I think the, the lake that is probably the most interesting laboratory on earth is Lake Vostok, which is an ah. example of a, of a subglacial lake. There you go. That's probably the one I was thinking of. Yeah, it is fascinating to me. Lake Lake uh, Vostok. So it's a subglacial lake. Subglacial lakes are lakes found in Antarctica. And unlike the lakes you and I interact with, which, you know, have bedrock or earth on the bottom, then you have water. And then above the water, you have air. Mm. Um, Lake Vostok has bedrock on the bottom, water above that, and then two miles of ice above it. Wow. So to get to Lake Vostok, you would have to drill through a full two miles of ice to just get to the liquid water that's there. And there's several things about that that's just fascinating. The first is, is that th that lake is not small. It's about the size of Lake Ontario. So it's an enormous body of water. It's no little puddle. There's hundreds of others. And we're only beginning to learn about what's going on down there. So Lake Vostok was, you know, the water that's there was last exposed to the atmosphere that you and I are breathing. Uh, estimates vary, but anywhere from 100,000 years ago to several million years ago. Incredible. So if you think about that, the last time that water was exposed to air was a period of time where at the very least, saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths were walking around, right? So that, that gets you thinking a little bit about, about life down there. Indeed. Uh, now, is life down there? Is there life down there in, in that lake? 
There is. Uh, so the Russians have been the, the, the main uh, leaders of investment particular lake and it took them a long time but they eventually were able to penetrate to it and take uh, water samples uh, from the lake relatively small water samples and uh, that that it, it shows life so there is definitely bacterial life mm -hmm. microscopic life uh, exists down there and research on what that life is like and what it's all about is is sort of ongoing but what's really interesting to think about is you know where you and I live you know on the surface of the earth, we get our carbon one way or another from, from photosynthesis, right? Mm -hmm. So either we eat plants or we eat other things that have eaten plants. Either way, the carbon in the molecules in your body was once CO2. And, mm -hmm. and that CO2 was formed into a, another kind of molecule via some plant via photosynthesis, right? If you're at the bottom of Lake Vostok, it is it is utterly and completely dark. So no light is going to penetrate two miles of ice. What that means is that the life that is there is being sustained by non-photosynthetic activity. So huh. it's chemosynthesis, which is ultimately driving life down there. Chemosynthesis being the derivation of energy from a from a, a reaction with molecules that releases energy that you the organism then uses to build biomass from. Okay, so this begs the question. You were just talking about where you and I live. What about the moons uh, around Jupiter that are liquid uh, water with a right. very thick ice sheet? I mean, is this is how is this related? It's very related. I mean, that's that's you know another great question. I mean, so uh, one of the agencies most interested in the research going on in Antarctica is NASA. So as you correctly point out, there's the, the moons of, of Jupiter, particularly I think Europa is, have these, these seas on them, right? So it's kind of an interesting situation. The estimates of how much water is on uh, Europa alone, I think, are that it's larger than all the water on Earth, even though Europa is, is only about 0.9 times the size of our moon. So there's a lot of water there. How much of that is in the liquid state is a little controversial, but we do know that there's ice and then below the ice is water. So whatever technology we build here on earth to get down to the sub uh, glacial lakes in Antarctica is a very, very great use to any attempt we might make to go to uh, Europa and, and try to find uh, liquid water there. Sometime in the future. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, it's a fascinating thing to think about. That's a lot of water. Yeah. Uh, you know, we yeah. think of ourselves as water-based life. It's pretty chilly up there, but still, one can always hope. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, uh, it's, it's exciting to, to consider. Uh, all right. Let me steer you back to uh, my, where I come from, and that is the Finger Lakes region in New York. My mom had a place on Seneca Lake, so I've spent a lot of time there. That, I think, is the deepest of the uh, Finger Lakes in the region. What do you know about that lake apart from it being formed by glaciers? You know, the Finger Lakes, the one thing I, I I was tempted to put in the book, which I did not, and I don't know, being from the air, you may have heard of this, but there's a James Fenimore Cooper short story about, I think it's Lake Seneca Lake, I'm, but don't hold me to that, mm. called the lake, and it's about the lake gun effect. So there's this long-standing observation of these booms that that people hear near the finger lakes and it's it's 
as of yet, not clear exactly what, what causes them. Presumably they sound like a gunshot because of the lake gun sound. And there's been hypotheses that they are due to subterranean caverns collapsing, which mm. can occur beneath lakes uh, or some kind of seismic activity, things of that nature. But there has just been so little written about it that short of, and I didn't have the time for this, short of actually taking a trip and interviewing interviewing locals about the Lake Gun effect, I didn't think I could pull off a chapter on that. But that's something I, at some point in the future, I hope to to, uh, to do something like that and find out more about it. Well, it makes a lot of sense about the uh, subterranean caverns uh, right off of Seneca Lake. There's an enormous salt mine, and so, which I think had natural caverns to begin with. So that-, right. that that uh, certainly could have been uh, a reason for it. And they are lovely. I mean, uh, the Lake Seneca Lake's gorgeous. Uh, and uh, I spent time on Cayuga, Cayuga uh, cause uh-huh. I, was, I was at Cornell. And um, so had a, a great view from Uris Library up there. Yeah, th- certainly apart from uh, drownings, they don't appear to be dangerous lakes. <laughs> right, right. But you did mention uh, a salt mine and caverns. Mm-hmm. And this also didn't make it into the book, but there's uh, the fascinating example of a lake in, uh, in southern Louisiana called Lake Pegneur, which is just a lake that's existed for some time. But back in the 80s, I believe it was, a petrochemical company had rights to drill into that lake, and they did. But through a series of accidents, they they penetrated a salt dome that was adjacent to the lake. So in the petrochemical industry, you know, storing these chemicals can be an important thing, right? Demand and supply can fluctuate. So you want to have a lot of capacity for storage. And what they do is they locate salt domes Mm -hmm. and they mine out the salt, which you can, of course, use, uh, you can sell that. But, But then you have these enormous cylindrical caverns and they use those to store, for example, compressed gas, uh, natural gas, and things like that. And one of these enormous caverns was was penetrated by the drill bit when they were uh, drilling into the, the floor of Lake Pegneur, and the entire lake drained. <laughs> I mean, oh it drained God. quickly. It drained so quickly that for uh, a day or two, uh, a 100-foot waterfall existed there where the water was falling from the Gulf of Mexico inland. Oh, my gosh. So it dropped so quickly that it became below sea level. The normal flow toward the Gulf of Mexico reversed, creating a waterfall in, the, in that area. You can find there's, there's videos on YouTube, and it's kind of stunning. You see these enormous barges spinning around in this vortex like, like a kid's toy in a bathtub. It's terrifying to look at. Do they have a salt lake now there? No. So, well, what did they have? They have, uh, gosh, it's been a while since I read, I read about it. I think, don't quote me on it, I think it's a low salinity lake now, you know, the cavern filled, and I guess some salt water probably makes it through, but I, I think it, still you have a flow of, of fresh water in and out of the lake, so I'm guessing it's primarily fresh water. Uh, you know, you, you brought up an interesting subject about uh, the storage of uh, gas. That actually was a big deal up at uh, Seneca Lake because of that very reason. There's a lot of uh, fracking that goes on in the region. And so they were oh. looking for places to store the gas. And the salt mines seemed like a, the natural thing, uh, although the community kind of rose up and prevented that from happening. 
Well, I hope at whatever hearings were held, they showed video of Lake Pignure because that surely would have <laughs> showed it, surely would have an argument that would have won the day. <laughs> yes, the, the, that image is just incredible. I'm going to have to go check that out. All right, so as we're, we're winding up here today, Dr. Saylor, final thoughts on lakes. Sure, sure. So I, I think, you know, the, the intriguing thing about lakes is in a certain sense, we're intimately involved in lakes. We swim in them. We, you know, boat across and things of that nature. But I think uh, lakes have kind of a duality to them. We say we swim in them, but we really swim on them. We boat on them. We know very little about their depths, right? Even in, in a lake that people have been living next to, like Seneca, for years and years. Uh, even when we go, you know, go fishing, we throw a hook in and sort of it's just have no idea what's going on underneath the surface, right? So I think uh, lakes are both this thing that we find as relaxing, but I think they're also a thing that we are a little fearful of, right? If you're treading in water, you ever play that, you know, little <laughs> joke with someone, gee, I wonder if there's a monster about, you know, to bite your toes. And as a full grown adult, you just laugh it up. <laughs> Part of you says, well, I really don't know, do I, right? So I, I think uh, th there's sort of a duality to lakes. There's just an unknown that's always there. One could actually make the argument we, we don't really see lakes, right? If you look at at a nearby lake, what you end up seeing is the reflection of the sky or the reflection of the far shore. So there's only so much we can know about a lake. So I think we all have both a love and a fear of them. And I think this book kind of taps into to both of those to show what's really good about them, but also the part of them that's a bit mysterious and scary and even perhaps a little bit, bit dangerous. So I hope people find that as intriguing as to read as I did uh, to write. And the book is Lakes, Their Birth, Life, and Death, and it has been written by John Richard Saylor, PhD. Dr. Saylor, where can we find this book? So you can find this book at bookstores just about everywhere. And if you would like to buy it uh, online, I have a host of links to uh, online booksellers at my website, and that is johnrichardsaylor.com. Okay, and we'll make sure we put that in with the... Uh the podcast so people can go straight there to uh, to buy from it great that sounds wonderful all right dr sailor thank you so much for your time today well thank you for having me on the show i really enjoyed it and for radio free galisteo i'm john shannon